Okay, every week for the... I'll start again without going shrill. Every week for the last... Every week during lockdown... Oh, stop now. This is this is the opening bit, isn't it? This will work its way you, you just know as soon as you get your flub. Hello. Welcome to episode 30 of The Film File. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And we're back for, well, another lockdown special. When I thought we were going to do lockdown specials, I thought maybe three to four weeks, three episodes back into it. But time has moved on. It's now been the majority of our episodes, I think. (laughs) Because we shifted from being like a fortnightly one, because when work was all involved, it was hard to manage to get them together. To We're we're churning them out one, one a week. It's got harder doing it one a week, I must be honest. Yeah. We have the time. It's not like I have a problem with the time. I'm not sure how we're going to cope once we actually return to some kind of normality. There is no such thing as normality. We're living in the latest season of Black Mirror, I'm telling you. Or we're living within the Matrix and it's corrupted. As you say that, that's a nice link to say in today's show, we've got a deep dive into the Matrix, the Keanu Reeves film that wowed audiences back in 1999. Andy will be looking at his Miss Classic film, which is a classic in every sense of the word, Rashomon. But of course, before anything else, Andy has been trawling the World Wide Web to bring you the latest news. Andy, tell us the news. Right. Well, let's start, as we always do, with talks about film delays that are going on. Didn't we, didn't we do this last week? Yeah, every week. <laughs> and every week, everything changes again. Literally, within two hours, I was actually editing last week's show when some of this news broke and I straight away thought, great, the show's out of date even before it's gone live. <laughs> um, That's the world we live in. Tenet, Tenet has now got an indefinite release date. It got pulled completely off the slate and there's a lot of discussions going on behind the scenes. Now, I know you've heard something and I've heard something as well. And there's rumours going around that Warners have basically turned around to Nolan and said, if you still insist this is going to be a worldwide same-day release, then it's next year. If you want it to come out this year at all, you need to accept that America gets it later because America is what the biggest problem is here. There's rumours of a late August release possibly for the EU market. Whether all of these come to fruition, because Nolan is very, very adamant that he doesn't want any spoilers going out. He's kept everything secret, so you can understand he doesn't want it to get released one nationality first and spoil it for everyone else. Let's be frank, if you got a a European release and a Chinese release, it would be all over the internet before it got a chance of opening yes. in the States. So I'm, I'm absolutely with him on that. The rumour that I've heard is that it's going to open the Cannes Film Festival next year. So who knows at the moment? These are just rumours flying thick and fast. If it was to do uh, Cannes, then that means that's a May release for next year. Which puts it around about the time that it's rumoured that Bond is going to be moving to. So it could be a very crammed early summer next year. Uh, Mulan, in addition, has been delayed indefinitely. Now, we've got a little thing going with Mulan because you've got a, you're calling it out and we're going to hear it here first, is that you think it's going to go to Disney+. Plus? Yeah, because of the shifting of so many of the Disney Plus things that were due to release this month, next month and November, a lot of these things that are disappearing off the cinematic radar, I've got suspicion, are going to be filling some of those slots. Mulan, I suspect, will drop sometime in August because that's a slot that has been vacated. And uh, Pixar's Soul is another one that has moved off the release radar, and I think that's going straight to Disney+. Plus. 
Do you think, though, that the Chinese market is starting to slowly open up, that Mulan is is the big saviour for that? That will be a huge film to release into the Chinese markets, skipping Disney Plus and therefore opening in China first and, and doing in kind of a way that we all used to always used to suffer for, which we get a an American release and then two months later we get the UK release and we will always be behind Star Wars was was that exactly. I think the same is is probably going to happen. We'll get a China and European release and then a staggered US release. I I suspect that it'll be more... I mean, I, I think that you're partially right in that China, because they're more or less reopening. Mulan is pretty much bang on the two hours mark that China are saying that they will accept films up to the runtime of. But that film in that territory will make its money back. Yeah, absolutely. So I reckon that it will definitely get the Chinese release and then the rest of the world will be getting it on home release. As we say every time, this is pure speculation, but speculation based on kind of the rumblings that we've heard. Yeah. Um, Avatar 2 has had delays announced again. It was originally planned... <laughs> I mean, it was originally planned for 2014. It's had a longer delay process than New Mutants at this point in time. Uh, but it's it was planned to come out Christmas 2021. It's now going to be Christmas 2022. The Star Wars films, the next lot of trilogies and spin-offs, etc., have been knocked for starting from 2023 onwards instead of 2022 onwards. The Last Duel, which we've spoken about a few other times, uh, the Ridley Scott-directed film, that's now October next year. The French Dispatch, which is my most anticipated film of the year. That's the new Wes Anderson because film. Wes Anderson. That's now a to-be-announced. That's dropped off all the radar as well. So, as you can imagine, that's a huge blow to me. Spidey 3 is now planned to take the December 2021 slot that has been vacated from Avatar 2. Top Gun has now moved to July 2021. It was originally planned to come out early December this year. And Quiet Place 2 is now April 2021. So there's a lot of reshuffling gone on in the past seven days. And this reshuffling is going to go on just because, I mean, I know we've we've lost films that have been in production. Some films aren't ever going to start production again. Some are on hiatus. Some are just waiting around to, to green light. But this this knock on effect is going to go on for years because there are there are films that of course we all know we've been imminent uh, for release. Black Widow, anybody? Yep. are all now vying for a, a viable slot for next year. It, it's it is it's just chaotic. It's there are scientists in rooms with monkeys trying to work this out. It's like that meme um, gif that goes around from Always Sunny with him stood in front of all the pin board with all the wires and strings connecting everything together. And that's how they're trying to work out the release dates at the moment. Pull one (laughs) pin out, the whole thing, the whole thing will will, will shred. Uh, And talking of of late news, because this happened after we finished recording, Bill and Ted, Face the Music, had another change to its its, uh, release schedule. Yep. Um, September the 1st for the US market. We're expecting to get an announcement on the more international markets at some point but it will be going to cinema and to video on demand on the same day. Which I think, as I said before, I think it's where Bill and Ted will find its market. I don't think it will find a market in the cinema. I think it will I think it will work on VOD. I think it will be a bigger hit on VOD than it would be if it had yeah. just gone to straight, straight to cinema. But at least it gets a nod to having a cinema release. So if you guys get it at, at your cinema... I'll, I'll go and see it in, in the cinema and I'll watch it on VOD. The new trailer came out at the same time with as the date announcement. And you know what? I'm still not I'm still not feeling it. Aren't you? Oh, I am. I, I was 
It was like welcoming back two old friends. Not old friends that you want to spend more longer than two hours with, but I'm talking of which I've heard that the cut time is is really, really short. Well, that's one thing that really concerns me. Um, because I've I've said in the past, whenever I've reviewed you know, your scary movies and your Meet the Spartans, etc. I've always said that if you can't sustain a comedy for more than 80 minutes, then you've got a problem. You've got a major problem. And this is coming in at 78 minutes. And this is a comedy which allegedly has a storyline to it. Yeah. yeah. There's episodes of Game of Thrones that were longer than 78 minutes. I know. Anything under 80 minutes and my alarm bells, my alarm bells honestly go off. I mean, the, the trailers so far... I mean, you said that it's like welcoming back old friends, and that's part of my problem. It feels like it's forcibly making you remember them from the year. It's, it's the whole nostalgia thing that you know that I'm a big, yeah. I've got a big hatred for. Uh, it's relying on your memories of the earlier films to embrace this new film. And this is, yeah, this is Kevin Smith with churning out another Clerks film or another Jane Silent Bob's film. This is that kind of aspect again where it's just like oh well we're going to have loads of in jokes and references for the old fans uh, but not really much else I've, I've not chuckled i've not even had a wry smile watching the trailers i've just thought oh maybe they should have left it well we'll find out hopefully we'll find out in september or whenever we find out in the uk for good or for bad for good or for bad let's hope for good and talking of release date schedules probably as long as avatar really new mutants now, over the last week, there have been at least two different New Mutant stories that I've seen go out there. One, that it was going straight to Disney+. Plus. Now I've heard that it's going out to cinema. Andy, any clarification on New Mutants? And, and remembering that a, a trailer's dropped a trailer's dropped, and the opening sequence has dropped as well. Opening sequence came from the Comic-Con streams this weekend. There's been a lot of rumblings, and everything at the moment is still speculation and rumours. There's still no cinematic release date. I don't think it's a Disney Plus thing, because Disney Plus, they like to go for the 12A and below market, or the PG-13 if you're in the US. They want it to be family-friendly. They want Disney Plus wants you to have the confidence that you can sit your kid down in front of it, and nothing there will be offensive, scary, distressing, or upsetting. And New Mutants is pitched as being a 15-rated or above. Yeah. It's supposed to be a horror within like the X-Men universe. The same way that we, you won't see Logan or Deadpool appear on Disney+, Plus. I don't think this will be Disney+. Plus. This will go to other streaming services. I agree. I, I totally agree. However, they, they do still seem to be keen on eventually getting it to cinemas. They, they, they want to release this at the cinemas. Uh, Josh Boone, the director, has confirmed that the runtime is 98 minutes. So it's it's longer than Bill and Ted, so it deserves to exist. And apparently, there was never there was never a cut that was anything more than about 104 minutes at its longest. He's also been discussing the plans that they would have had for further films, but obviously they've now been abandoned. You know, he had ideas for Antonio Banderas in the second film. He wanted to weave characters like Warlock and Karma into the mix. And the third film, he had the idea to work up towards the Inferno story arc. And now I am so disappointed that all of this has fallen apart. Yeah, well, it's those that little thing, depending on how well it does. If it, if it's got a good critical reception and a good box office reception, you know, we live in a world which those are the dominating factors. Everything could change on a dime, even though perhaps it's been too long. Uh, and my worry is, whenever you get a film that's that's been delayed for whatever reason, it kind of picks up. It picks up a bit of a stench where audiences are somehow put off by that. They, they, they feel like it could be a dud. They feel there could be something wrong. So so who knows? Uh, I hope to see it. I'd like to see it in the cinema. 
I just like to see it now. And if you remember that there was all the news, yeah, over the past couple of years with this saying like, oh, it was forced into reshoots and they had to rewrite the script and et cetera, et cetera. Well, Josh Boone has stated they never got to reshoot anything. They've never even got to do pickups, which normal films do. They really completely shut down during the merger and that was it. So there's never been any pickups, never been any reshoots. It was all false speculation. No, I, I think he's stuck by that. The film that he's planning to release is his original cut. Let's hope we get to see it soon. Fingers crossed. Um, although, you know, it, we've seen the first about five minutes through the Comic-Con footage. Maybe next Comic-Con they'll release another five minutes and then the <laughs> year after another five minutes. <laughs> um, it'll, it'll echo back to what we were talking about last week where we're going to get it serialised over 20 years. <laughs> Eventually, we all look back on seeing this the full film in five-minute five minute <laughs> slots forever. So, other news, Andy, what have we got? Lando Calrissian series has been rumoured. Now, just to make it clear, this is rumoured. This has come from a leak reported on a fan podcast and page, so it's complete speculation. But rather than talk about the news of it, I just want to ask, do we really want more stuff about characters that we already know? I think no. That's a personal opinion. I think that Donald Glover was was wasted in, in Solo. I've got more love for Solo than I did for Rise of Skywalker. I wouldn't mind seeing more uh, Han Solo adventures. I think, um, I think it would work really well as a series of films on Disney Plus rather than cinema. But I can't see them investing that kind of money into a solo series at all. So for me, solo was pointless. Oh, I agree. I totally agree with that. I, per- I personally don't believe that we need any more story for Obi-Wan, which is one thing that's in production. I mean, we already know what he was like as a Padawan. We know all the work up to like him falling out with Anakin and chopping Anakin's arms and legs off and then disappearing. We already know him meeting Luke. So what we've got is the hermit years in between. So what we're going to be watching, a series of Obi-Wan sat in a cave, twiddling his thumbs. It doesn't intrigue me. I don't think there's any character development that we can get from that, even if they do have him taking part in like helping out different things. It'll feel like an unnecessary throwback for no good reason. Every time I hear someone say they want a Boba Fett, Darth Maul or Yoda spin-off movie or series, part of my soul dies. <laughs> I think with Obi-Wan, there is a... More so than Solo, to a, to a degree. There are these lost years in between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope as to why he became a hermit. He, he didn't become a hermit at the end of, end of the first trilogy. You know, I think there could be a sort of wandering samurai feel to it that, that hasn't, been, hasn't been done. There was a fantastic Jason Aaron story in the Marvel comic Star Wars that, that had Obi-Wan Kenobi become Ben Kenobi and and that was an intriguing storyline, and and seeing that visualized would be would be quite a thing. For for me, I mean, The Mandalorian has shown how you can use ideas with new characters. Because all those people saying they want a Boba Fett series, we've already got The Mandalorian using the same kind of concept, but in a much better way. And it's not a character that we already know the outcome for. So why not instead of doing an Obi Wan series where he's a wandering samurai, have another wandering samurai kind of Jedi, or maybe a character that we only saw in one film and was seriously underused, such as in Rogue One. You've got Donnie Yen's character, the blind, force-sensitive character, who seemed like a, a wandering samurai kind of approach. That would be a much more interesting character because we don't know anything about his journey up to that point. I'm not as I'm not as down on an Obi-Wan series. I'd probably go for more of an Obi-Wan series than I would for a Lando Calrissian series, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah, I, I can see that, but I'd rather just play with other puppets in that universe. 
So in other news then, uh, Dave Franco is to play Vanilla Ice in a new biopic. Oh, this is to the extreme. Yeah. Now, oh, hey, baby. He, he rocks a mic like thing. a vandal. <laughs> Do we need to see Dave Franco play Vanilla Ice in a new biopic? Is there enough of a Vanilla Ice story to warrant a biopic? Discuss. Yes. You think there is? Yes. And yes, yes. And more yes. Um, I, here's where I come out and say that I was a, quite a fan of Vanilla Ice back in the day. And I have been. Can we edit that line out? With... Can we? Can we please? <laughs> I have been intrigued by his story ever since because what we saw when Ice Ice Baby was a hit and his album To the Extreme was a huge hit, topping the Billboard charts, and then his whole career crashing around him. His career crashed because he was accused of faking all his backstory, but he didn't. It was his publicists who forced all this on him. Right. And made up his whole backstory. His real backstory of being a high school dropout who went from selling cars to topping the Billboard charts and then his whole career falling apart. And he now, yeah, he, he does home improvement kind of shows and things like that. It, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. And yeah, I, I've, I've read so much about where his career started, how he used to be quite respected as like a, a street rapper. But then he was engineered to be this false idol who dances while rapping. And that put him out of favor with the actual rap industry, the, the rap crowd, the, the street level rap. There's a lot in there. And I know he's seen as a joke of a character. And I think that's the point. It's like with The Disaster Artist. That film was a fascinating portrayal of someone who is considered a joke. But it actually makes you kind of think a bit deeper about the person that it's representing. And I think there's a lot that they can do with this Vanilla Ice film. If they can bring the heart to it that they did with the disaster artist, then I think they're in for an interesting film. Do you remember Vanilla Ice's real name? What? Uh, Rob Van Winkle? Yeah. Because uh, uh, Dave Franco is currently spending time with Rob Van Winkle to um, find out some information that isn't publicly known as well to use in the film. They're going for like, it is going to be a companion piece of the disaster artist. It's going to be another exploration of a joke character, but to see how success and failure are influenced by perceptions of other people around them. I'm well up for this. I And I think Dave Franco is perfect for it. Yeah, and he, he does perfect. bear an uncanny resemblance. Doug Lyman's Tom Cruise-led space film that we previously mentioned, it may have found a home at Universal, who are circling the project. The first film shot in space. Yeah, the first major narrative film to be partially filmed in space. Uh, expected to be running over 200 million budget with Elon Musk and NASA both involved in the production of it. No details on story yet, but the excitement is building just at the whole idea of Lyman and Cruz working together again because they gave us American Made and Edge of Tomorrow. And for that, I will always be grateful. Both films that I absolutely love. So it's no surprise to me, like Universal uh, circling this. I think it'll be a great thing for them to add into the upcoming slate, whenever that slate is. The Chucky films... I've got a an upcoming TV series continuation of the franchise. The films have had a mo recent modern reboot, but this is going to be similar to what happened with the Evil Dead TV series, that it's going to pick up from the original film series continuity and progress it forwards. In the series, a vintage Chucky doll will turn up at a yard sale in an idyllic community, but that gets torn apart as a string of murders occurs and exposes the town's darkest secrets at the same time. Uh, Brad Dourif has returned to provide the voice of Chucky, which has been a huge fan favourite bit of news there. 
And uh, Don Mancini, who co-wrote the first film and penned the six sequels, is also back on board. So this is going to be a proper spiritual successor to the Chucky series. Did you see the remake? I've not watched the remake. The trailers didn't didn't do anything for me. This is why I don't like to watch trailers because it actually puts me off checking films out. Why did did you get around to watching? I didn't, and I I didn't like the design, and it is the trailer put me off. To be perfectly honest, but I from what I gather of where it was going, I thought it was quite an interesting idea. But it's it's when they tried to to reboot Nightmare on Elm Street with a different actor. There was nothing particularly wrong with the reboot, but you've grown to you've grown to appreciate those characters and what those original actors, even though in voice only with Chucky, uh, and, yeah. and the look and the iconic looks of those characters are what makes it. It's not necessarily name only. It's 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 what was brought originally to them that made them stand out. Uh, and so I wasn't particularly drawn to it. I like the first Chucky film, and I remember Bride of Chucky. I don't think I really followed the sequels. Of course, they were no- notorious at one point for spreading violence across the world. They were targeted as being responsible for quite a lot of um, horrific real-life crimes, even though the links were very tenuous. Moving on to something completely different, and we've not mentioned Netflix yet. Funny enough. And that's a rarity. <laughs> that's a rarity that we don't mention Netflix, but... Now I'm going to mention Netflix. So Ryan Reynolds and Sean Levy, who have got Free Guy eventually due for release sometime, are already planning another collaboration this time for Netflix. What are they bringing us, Andy? They're bringing us a story about an astronaut who travels back in time and works with his younger self. Okay. There's there's no name set for it yet, but apparently this project was originally set up by Paramount eight years ago with Tom Cruise in mind for the lead. But there's been rewrites and everything over the time, and it got delayed and put on hold. And now Jonathan Tropper is penning the latest version of the script, and Reynolds and Levy are producing. So this is going to be another... We were talking last week about how Netflix tackles genre, and this is a time travel sci-fi film. It's Netflix doing what we've said that they do so well. I got to see Six Underground the other day, which was the start of Ryan Reynolds' relationship with, with Netflix for all intents and purposes. Have you had a chance to see it, Michael Bay's? You could call it a film. See, that, or you could call that, it a that's the two words that put me off. <laughs> <laughs> or you could call it a trailer for a much bigger film. There's a trailer that lasts <laughs> nearly two hours. When I heard Ryan Reynolds was going to be in a Netflix action film, I got excited, and it's always a Michael Bay one, and I just went, no, no, I'm not watching Ryan Reynolds throw his career away in that. It's so Michael <laughs> Bay. That's the only thing I can say about it. Going into it is just a Michael Bay film. It's probably more Michael Bay than anything Michael Bay's done other than the last Michael Bay film. That doesn't make me want to watch it at all. That's pretty much it. I mean, the Comic-Con, which has just run this weekend, there was a lot of panels and everything going on, but there wasn't a lot of new information that came from them. Yeah, they were more enjoyable. I've not had a chance to sit through all of them yet, and I've, uh, I'm, I'm giving myself time, like I haven't got enough of it, but I'm just giving <laughs> myself to go through it. I'm quite intrigued about the retrospective on Constantine, the Keanu Reeves one. Yeah, I've got that one to watch myself. Uh, there's a Bill and Ted one. Uh, there's a started watching the Marvel comics one. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's the accessibility to to an event that that you and I probably have very very little chance of ever getting to. But I'm yeah. intrigued about about catching up with them. There's been a couple of um, sad stories over the over the weekend. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a bit of a bad weekend, hasn't it, for losses. One of the people who've passed away, Olivia de Havilland. Yes. I mean, 104 years old. And what an innings. You know, she was the last remaining star of Gone with the Wind. She played the character Melanie, I believe. That's right. 
And um, she also won, she won Oscars for films like To Each His Own and The Heiress, as well as she had nominations for a variety of films, such as Gone with the Wind, Snake Pit, My Cousin Rachel. Uh, she was known for a plethora of roles throughout the decades, from tacky disaster movies such as Airport 77 to films such as Captain Blood and most most notoriously as Maid Marion in Errol Flynn's version of Robin Hood. Yeah, The Adventures of Robin Hood is a fantastic film. If you've never had a chance to see it, go and watch it. It's everything that a swashbuckling film should be. So there was that. She was uh, uh, in The Charge of the Light Brigade, The Private Lives of Elizabeth yep. and Essex. They died with their boots on. She was she was the leading lady to Errol Flynn's leading man for, for many, many years. Uh, she had, as you say, a, a heck of a career. And of course, she was in the fantastic Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which is a, a great film if you've ever had a chance to see. And she was in The Swarm. Oh, what a film. <laughs> a career that spanned decades upon decades, a really healthy, fulfilling life. She was life. Hollywood old guard, wasn't she? She was. She was. She was what made her. One of the last living legends, basically. Yeah. Sad news for me this weekend has been the death of actor John Saxon. John Saxon, and we did enter the dragon as our deep dive a couple of weeks ago was one of those actors that, that he wasn't in a, in, a, in a great amount of films, but for a certain generation, of course, being in Enter the Dragon just made him a, a very cool leading man. He passed away this weekend, aged 83. But other than being in, in um, Enter the Dragon, he was in Battle Beyond the Stars. Oh, what a film. He was a B-movie actor. And, and I mean that in, yeah. in the nicest sense of the, sense of the word. And I don't mean that in derogatory he, he never really made it into sort of the mainstream, but he was in some, some fantastic films, let alone being in the films we've just mentioned. He was in two of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. He was yep. in Black Christmas, uh, Queen of Blood. He was in the uh, CSI episode directed by Quentin Tarantino, which is the kind of cult status. He was the kind of cult status that, that he deserved that someone like Tarantino would, would seek him out. Uh, very sad and... It makes me, again, even though we watched it a couple of weeks ago, to go back and watch Enter the Dragon. But this time with a tear in my eye. Two sad losses within a matter of 48 hours. Indeed. And that's the news. So if you're enjoying the show so far, or you're not enjoying it, but you just want to torture yourself, then you can subscribe <laughs> by hitting the subscribe button on your favourite platform. If you've got any feedback, anything you want to discuss with us, you can reach out to us. Over on Twitter, at UK. And please leave a review because, well, we're egotistical at the end of the day and we just like to hear nice things said about us. That's not to say we don't read any negative reviews. We've just not had any yet. Every week for the last few weeks during lockdown, uh, I've been challenging Andy to watch one of the films for, which for some reason, unbeknownst to all men, including scientists working on it by the hour, why he's missed certain very, very famous and classic movies. In a segment we like to call Andy's Miss Classic Movies, trademark The Film File, I set Andy the task of watching, well, not only a film, but a, a piece of cultural relevance. Uh, one of those films which can actually be said change the way that we perceive cinema. And that film is Rashomon. So Rashomon came out in 1950, uh, considered to be an absolute classic of cinema, directed by Akira Kurosawa. It's known as a psychological thriller, a crime film, a film about juxtapositioning. It's one of those films which, which redefined the storytelling elements in cinema and has been used many, many times. Its influence has been felt 
as recently until the last couple of years ago. For those who don't know it, it's a, it's a plot device that involves various characters providing subjective and alternate and self-serving contradictory versions of the same event. Andy, for a film that's, that's, that's classic, I had to do this as part of film school. What did you think of Rashomon? And tell us about the film and why those elements of those perspectives were so groundbreaking. Story-wise, it's it's an intriguing enough story. It's you know the whole approach of the unreliability of witnesses exploring the events surrounding a murder told from the different perspectives that are all involved, and showcasing how each person will tell the story to show themselves in a more positive or stronger light. Maybe they're saying that they did the murder, but they're doing that to show that they're not weak. And it's it's one of those stories that still doesn't quite answer exactly what happened by the end of it and leaves you thinking and trying to piece it together yourself. Which Kurosawa, when asked who actually did commit the murder and how did, what, what is the truth, said that it's up for you to interpret. He didn't want to reveal what he believed the true story was because it, it is a film that explores understandings and perceptions and piecing together puzzles. What makes this film really stand out is not the story but the method in which it's told the cinematography the use of lighting the simplistic sets uh, and and just the the natural way of telling the story it's not overblown it's not you know packed with like dramatic music telling you how to feel and how to like follow it it is just presented to you as multiple stories it, it, it is a fantastic film, and, and you mentioned cinematography. You, you've got to, you've got to give a huge credit to how this film looks, uh, because Kurosawa worked really in a close collaboration with Keizu Miyagawa. And you're right; it gives it that that it gives it such an, an individualistic look. It gives it, it sets it aside from any other sort of Japanese film at that particular point. Not only the storytelling, but there, there are just so many. Well, just so many darn cool moments in it. And and my, my favourite element of it is because he was such a fantastic actor, was Toshiro Mufun in it, who's just absolutely, he's one of those actors. And, and I know they've attempted to do several tellings of this in in, in, in Western-style storytelling, but he is he is the Clint Eastwood of, of Japanese cinema and and, yeah. and and such a star-making role that he, that he has with this movie. He worked regularly with Kurosawa, as did um, Takashi Shimura, who's also hugely notable and recognisable throughout all of Kurosawa's films. He plays the woodcutter, doesn't he? Yes. He's the one who who starts the story off and starts telling the backstory, and then it passes around. As The the whole concept of the film is the three guys taking shelter at the um, Rashomon Gate are talking about this crime that took place. And relaying the information as to what they know about it, and it's a simple way to approach a story. But like we said, the cinematography, very experimental in the uses of multiple filming techniques, catching the actual natural light of the sun and using reflective surfaces to shine it onto moments. That's right. So that it's not it's not falsely lit. Simple things such as the series of single close-up shots of the bandits to the wife to the husband to the bandit to the wife to the husband as like the tensions building to show the triangular relationship and that's a sequence that would later as with a lot of Kurosawa's stylings pop up in films from people such as Sergio Leone I mean the the good the bad and the ugly has that triangle approach 
for the Mexican standoff. It does. It's like Leone was hugely influenced by Kurosawa, and he never denied it because all of his spaghetti westerns were basically Kurosawa's films given a western style. You watch this film, and it's a film that, whilst the story's good, if it wasn't for the way that it's made, it would just be an average kind of film. But the manner in which it's made leaves you at the end wanting to explore it more to see how it influenced everything that came after it. Because the, the four stories are the bandit story, which is a Toshiro Muffin one. And then you've got the wife story, the samurai's wife, who tells a different story to the court. And then you've got um, the samurai story, where the court is the story of the deceased samurai, told through yep. a medium. And then we've got the woodcutter story back at the Rashomon Gate after the trial. Yep. And then we have the climax where uh, the woodcutter, the priest, the commoner interrupted from the discussion of the woodcutter's account by the sound of that crying baby. Yeah. We said that it's hugely influential, uh, influential on people like Sergio Leone. The, the impact of Rashomon and the style of Rashomon has carried on today into films. Well, for instance, the, the, the things that, that instantly spring to mind are... Uh, Usual Suspects, which is the the telling of a story of an unreliable uh, narrator in that one. I mean, you've even got, I mean, Tarantino has been influenced with it. I mean, if there's, when Pulp Fiction came out, some people criticised that some of the scenes where you get to see a repetition of an event is different. Yeah, the famous um, Sam Jackson, like Ezekiel quote, when it's seen, heard later on in the film from the person behind the door, it's said in a different way. But that's, again, the whole, this is what they're witnessing from these characters are. And, you know, Tarantino has cited Kurosawa in a few interviews as one of his influences on his films. I mean, other than Usual Suspects, you can look at films like Gone Girl, which is, again, the unreliable narrative. Courage Under Fire, uh, the Edward Zick-directed Denzel Washington film. Predestination. I don't know if you had a chance to see that. I've not seen uh, Predestination. Beerig Brothers, who did Daybreakers, um, with Ethan Ethan Hawke as a as a time traveller, and then there's Hero, the Jet Li film, which again is a mercenary who gains the audience uh, with China's Emperor to share a tale of eliminating of three famed assassins. So it's a film that not only is it in the all time top 100 of the greatest films ever made, it's a film that's had such an impact on storytelling because of the unreliable narrative of. Uh, the unreliability of the eyewitnesses telling that story. And and still, even though it's as a 1950s film, and I'm sure you found this, Andy, watching it afresh is still intriguing. It doesn't feel like you're watching an old movie. You're still gripped by it. Yeah. Uh, and you're still, you still invest into the story. I, I must admit, I've not seen this for probably now, what, 15 years, maybe 20 years. But it's a film that I remember seeing and, and absolutely walking away, being, being blown away with. And one of those films went, that people say is a classic and you go yeah it is it's like citizen kane yeah. it, it's a moment in film history it's a moment of, of of a of a proper film legend is it kurosawa's best film uh, no i mean personally hidden fortress yojimbo and seven samurai are far better than yeah, it. yeah i'll go with that I, I, prefer, I think yojimbo it's the one i go back to is it his most important film yes I think it's his most important one because of the manner in which it plays with conventions. So for next week's film, I'm going to choose a film that I've not seen, uh, which is going to be interesting uh, to talk about. And that's Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. So I'm going to try and get to see that as well so we can both talk about this between now and next week. Quite looking forward to seeing it because I've heard a lot of um, very positive buzz about it. 
a lot of people saying that it's it's a very strong example of what Peter Jackson could do when he was breaking away from his his gore horror. Kind yeah, of this approach. was his grown up film, wasn't it? His first proper yeah. proper grown up film. And that's Andy's classics for next week. Heavenly creatures. Okay, so because we've not been uh, because we've not been sat in a darkened cinema, being able to review something to bring you, what we've been doing over the last few weeks. I say last few weeks, but it's last few months now. We've been doing a deep dive into a film that are either uh, films that, that that are worth uh, revisiting, or films that we love, or films that we just want to dissect. And when we decided on a film for this week, we both kind of looked at each other via the internet and went, you know what we should do? We should revisit The Matrix because, hell, why not? We're living it right now. Only, only some of the system files have got corrupted. Human beings are a disease. and We are the cure. Now. So you're here to save the world. Everything you know about reality. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. Everything you believe about the future. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Will be a thing of the past. No one can be told what the Matrix is. Whoa. You have to see it for yourself. The Matrix. So The Matrix came out in 1999. That's unbelievable for a start. Directed by the Wachowskis, who were then the Wachowski brothers. Uh, the first installment that ended up being a trilogy. The film starred Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss and Hugo Weaving. It depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside, which has now become legend, The Matrix. A simulated reality created by an artificial intelligence to distract humans while their bodies are used as an energy source. When computer programmer Thomas Anderson, under the hacker name of Neo, uncovers the truth, he's drawn into a rebellion against the machines, along with other people who've been freed from the Matrix. I saw this when it came out, and this came out kind of pre-Phantom Menace, and it was kind of the little film that could, because no one had really heard about it. There was some suggestions, there was a poster, there was a, a, a little bit of trailer, and it's a film that came out that absolutely ripped up the cinema. People sat and watched something that they'd never seen before, which was this combination of, of anime, subgenre of cyberpunk, Hong Kong action movies, uh, Hollywood action movies, and it blew people away. And to some extent, it unfortunately got muted by the, the two sequels for me. But when it came out, this was one of those films... And I, I saw it a couple of times. I saw it at a press show and then I went back to the cinema with some friends to see it. And then I went back again because I thought it was, I just thought it was that awesome. I remember on the run up to this film, I was excited for this film before it came out because being hugely into me sci-fi and genre, you know, reading magazines like SFX for 12 months beforehand, they were doing little features about this upcoming film that was going to be a live action anime and you know what it was going to it was going to visually represent images that we've seen only in cartoons such as ghost in the shell etc and that was it i was i was bought in and i was lapping up any information and this was this was pre me being able to get online and get onto the the sl small online groups that there were at the time so on the run-up to the film i was lapping up any magazine that had an image from the film i was picking up and reading and wanted to know more about it and i was surprised once i found out that the industry expected it to not really do much yeah it, it generally developed a, a grass level uh, a, a grass level following it's 
fans picked it up. People went to the cinema uh, and made this film. Uh, of course, the audiences always make a film a hit, but they made it a hit because they were they were knocked off, knocked off their seats by it. I mean, it, it had a cast that were either unknown or they'd fallen off the radar or they'd only ever been secondary actors. Keanu Reeves had completely fallen off everyone's radar at the time, and this was the film that propelled him back into the back into the focus point. The film was not expected to do much. When I started working at cinemas a couple of years later, finding out that they were surprised with how busy it was, and I was like, what? You weren't expecting this? What? Because I remember going there on opening night and it being heaving, absolutely heaving, because the buzz by that point had just blown, and they completely didn't expect it. But why was it such a, an influence? Story-wise, it's a cracking story. It's simple enough, but it's layered. Yes. I mean, all these memes going around about everything's made of cake. Matrix is cake. <laughs> if you slice it open, you can see the multiple layers. It's such a clever film, but it's visually spectacular enough, pushing the boundaries of what could be achieved action and effects-wise, that if you couldn't quite grasp on the multiple layers of story, you would just be thrilled and drawn along by the ride. It didn't look like any other film, did it? It didn't look like any other action film, Hollywood film, that, that came out at that particular time. I, I still think it's hard to find a film, even in this day and age, that lives up to it. The effect, I mean, going back to rewatch this, and this is a film that I go back to quite frequently, and it still baffles me how it can still look much better than a lot of modern day films. It still looks amazing. The bullet time effect is still, even though it was overused, I mean, it wasn't used in about 40 different films within two years of The Matrix coming out. The one I remember is always that it was used in uh, Charlie's Angels. Yeah, it's still a staggering effect because what the Wachowskis did is, and they didn't create the bullet time effect. It was not a, an original idea. It had been done in various kind of things previously, but it used to use just single still shots and then mapping them all together. Yeah, I remember it being used in Lost in Space. Yeah, they created a rig system with actual motion cameras connected around it, so they could film the whole sequence and then play it back in any order. So they, they had full fluid motion as to what shots they were going to be using and to spin it round and bring it back, etc. I remember watching like the behind-the-scenes stuff on the DVDs and going into detail and just being wowed that they pushed the technology to develop it into such a perfect effect. I think the reason that we we associate The Matrix with bullet time more than any other film is because it was so integral to the plot as well. It wasn't yeah. just a great effect that, that was plucked out and like somebody said, you know, we should use this. It really became, it became a centrepiece. It was representing him becoming one with The Matrix and being able to break the code. Yeah, and it was it was a fantastic shot when we first see it, but it played into what the film was about as well. It wasn't just a cool effect thrown away because it looked great. It, it, it became symbolic to what the Matrix and the Matrix artistic feeling was about that one. The general look of the film, you've got all the scenes within the Matrix are tinted green because at that point in time, most desktop PCs had your green monitors. So it was to represent that this is artificial. And then when they're in the real world, most of the scenes had a tint of blue because blue is a more natural feel. And that was a subtlety that I didn't pick up the first time they watched it. But I think it was when I got it on home release and I sat and watched it and I thought, oh, is something wrong with me, me colour because it looks a bit green. I was like, oh, no, this is deliberate. And it's only then that it kind of referenced to me. as like this is how it distinguishes what's real and what's not. 
and the music of the film, the music choices from the acts such as Prodigy, Marilyn Manson, Propeller Heads and Rage Against the Machine to the original pieces by Don Davis make the film what it is without, you know, without the Propeller Heads like running as the like low like firing weapons in a in the entrance to the building they're doing the full raid. Oh yeah, the act three. Would yeah. that scene have played out the same way with like without that music? Oh dum 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 Marvelous choices and so keyed in to the public psyche at that point in time that they became part of the whole Matrix effect. So this came out in the run up to Phantom Menace, and and people said that was the science fiction film blockbuster of of that year. And, and I, I agree. I think it was it's more memorable. It stood a better test of time. As you said, if you look at it now, it still has a freshness to it. Okay, some of the computer technology is the only thing that feels a little dated. But hey, they're living in a matrix. It had a such an impact on, on audiences and such an impact on films following that, that it redefined sort of how action sequences were shot, which even today with movies like John Wick uh, are, are still used the, the way that, that 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 thrilling... It was the anti-Michael Bay effect to a degree, wasn't it? It wasn't It wasn't just the fast cuts. It was the way that, that action was choreographed that, that felt new and felt different. And as you said, it, it redefined Keanu Reeves's career uh, and, and took Keanu Reeves further down sort of the action path, especially in martial arts film that he... Uh, that again we see him play out today in in his own film Man of Tai Chi, for instance, is was a huge debt to, to the Matrix. It's it's a stunning, stunning film. It's it's a film that even though is of its era, it's it's incredibly timeless. I mean, it, it's a film that made everyone want a Nokia phone. Yes, I mean the, the the phones and those phones in reality were a hunk of junk. They didn't do the the slick click noise when you slide it open. It kind of sort of went. And just dropped and then fell on the floor. <laughs> it was an utter piece of junk, but it made them look cool. Everything about the film looks cool. The whole residual self-image thing, like that, what you look like in the Matrix is your your self-image. And they all look, you know, there's the clip-on glasses, there's the long trench coats. Marvelous way of explaining why these people look so cool while they're doing what they're doing, and it's because that's how they perceive themselves. We can't talk about the Matrix though without having to talk about Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. Uh, they were filmed back to back in one shoot, came out on separate dates in 2003. They opened up the world. Uh, there was an improvement on the bullet time visual effects. There was also the Animatrix, a collection of uh, nine animated short films, uh, many created within the same Japanese animation style, a strong influence on, on the live. There was a game that, that tied into the films as well. However, for me, they spoil what the Matrix was. They, they take away, they leave a bit of a dark, nasty sheen over the original Matrix. What are your thoughts on, on the sequels? I remember as the sequels came out, and yeah, the first sequel came out, and half of the audience turned against the film. And then the third sequel came out, and the remaining audience there half of them turned against the film. Whereas me, I embraced them all because I embraced the the anime pseudo-psychologies that it was expanding out. It, this was stuff that I'd immersed myself in through like my manga and animes, my Akira's, my Ghost in the Shells, my Apple Seeds, etc. So it was delivering what I was expecting. But I completely, at the same time, understood how off-putting it was for people who wanted just more 
of the simple philosophies and not to bog itself down. And it is heavy in the, in the, the following two films. It does weigh itself down and bog itself down and mire itself. And maybe, maybe 30 minutes of editing on each of the films would have tightened things up and made them better. Yeah, there are some fantastic key sequences in, in all of the films, but there's nothing like that rush that you got from the original Matrix. Not that the fact that you'd, you'd seen it, but they didn't have the compelling. They didn't have the compelling storylines that the, the Matrix had. There was there was too much involvement in. It became more about the fetish than it became yeah. about the storytelling. Yeah, the, the expansion into video games to tell opposing stories. There was also an online game that ran for a few years that picked up from the events at the end of the third film and allowed things to progress there as you're someone who's been awoken within the Matrix. It, there was a lot of expansion to the stories and there's so much potential within there that I'm still excited for this next film that's going to be in production. So am I. I, I, hope, it, I hope it brings back what was exciting about the Matrix and rather than what became turgid about the sequels. One flaw that I will throw at the sequels is the over-reliance on CGI. Yes. The first film, the action sequences worked so well because all the wire work combined with like the bullet time effect was all done there and then. I mean, even things where they could have used CGI. I mean, the, there's the simple scene of, you know, the training sequence walking through the crowd and then the woman in, woman in the red dress. Yeah. If you watch that, you will notice the same person in different costumes multiple times. And that's because they hired multiple sets of twins in order to do that for real. So you would have the, them going past a businessman in a suit and then someone who looks exactly the same dressed as a cop turning around and looking at them. And it wasn't a CGI mapping. It was, we hired twins. And this was all just so that they could create the representation of a training program where obviously they wouldn't have scripted thousands and thousands of people to use within this framing. They would have just, like gaming designers do these days, just remap the same image multiple times. Brilliant. Whereas on the sequels, everything that they did where they wanted to replicate things, it was CGI. Yeah, some of the CGI came about because uh, Keanu Reeves famously had an injury on set that would have put production back a significant amount. So they had to digitally map him into some sequences. But I think he became a bit too reliant on that technology. Yeah, and it, I agree. As, as good as, I mean, even, even today, as good as the CGI effects for representing people are, a lot of the time it still looks like rubber dolls. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. still doesn't look real. It looks more computer game, doesn't it, than it does? It breaks you away from it and it disconnects you from being able to relate to the film because it no longer feels like it's got any risk or threat to it. And that's the only flaws that I will give to the second and third films is that the over-reliance on CGI cheapens and weakens some really key moments. Even the scenes in the real world, the defense of Zion, let down by some sloppy CGI. Yeah. It should have been climatic. It should have been powerful. It should have been the last defense of mankind. But instead, it's like, oh, ah, that didn't quite work. Oh, that's no. And it, it just felt too much like a c computer game rather than a desperate attempt at hu uh, humanity's last chance. Going back and revisiting it over the last week, there was one scene in particular, and I was talking to a friend of mine who's a programmer, and he pointed it out, which is when he goes to see the Oracle, Neo goes to see the Oracle in that sequence, she keeps asking him, and I never noticed this, if he wants a cookie, because cookie is <laughs> how you get information. It's those little layers to to the Matrix that give it that that extra quality, that, that well-thought-out creation of, of world-building, which is why it's, again, stood the test of time and feels 
still feels sort of timeless. It's it's a film that there's so many levels that you can look at it, and I love the whole cookies aspect. So just a couple of quick points on the development of this film. The uh, Wachowskis originally pitched the role of Neo to Will Smith, and he turned it down in favour of doing Wild Wild West, which I bet he's still I mean, kicking what, what a choice. Yeah. Morpheus. I don't blame him, to be honest with you. <laughs> Morpheus was originally to be played by Val Kilmer. I remember I was in Los Angeles just before it came out, and there were images of uh, Keanu Reeves with the shaved head, with headlines going, uh, Keanu Reeves desperately ill, not realising yeah. that they were actually shots was... from uh, from The Matrix. Sandra Bullock was touted for playing Trinity, but she turned it down because at that point in time, she didn't know who was going to be playing the lead actor, or it hadn't been confirmed as Keanu Reeves, and she said she, she didn't fancy working alongside someone who she didn't know. And then Keanu Reeves got, got pitched, got um, attached later, and she turned around and went, well, I made a mistake. <laughs> Over 20 years later, there's no, there's no turning back from the impact this film made. It changed Keanu Reeves' career without... The Matrix, we wouldn't have the John Wick films, I don't think. We wouldn't have that indulgence that we had for a short while of, of, of Hong Kong wire work in, that ended up in a lot of films. Never again, yeah. I think, used as successfully it was used in the, in the Matrix because it was, a, it was effects, it was stunts that worked within a storyline, not just for a, a gee whiz moment. I'm looking forward to the next Matrix film. I know they tried to reboot it a few years ago with Michael B. Jordan in a possible lead role, but it is about Neo. It is about Neo's journey, and it'd be great to see Keanu Reeves, again, who seems to be revisiting some of his old characters, to come yeah. back and, and give us a hopefully a Matrix sequel that is deserved of how classic the original film is. Yeah, And that's it for this week. Uh, thanks for joining us. As ever, though, before we leave you into a world of Groundhog Day, and there's the reference to Groundhog Day. And I we said I wasn't going to do it. Episode. I said I wasn't going to do it. We should just drop this in as an Easter egg. Andy, over the last week, what have you been watching? What have you been reading? What have you been enjoying? What has been your neat thing that you want to share? My neat thing is a game this week. And it's a, it's a standalone expansion to a game that I absolutely love. And if you own this game on Steam, you get the standalone expansion for free. On console, you have to pay for it, and that's Super Hot Mind Control Delete. Okay, I'm intrigued by the title already. Now, Super Hot. I mean, this this ties in perfectly with us talking about the Matrix today, because it's a first-person shooter game where time only moves as you start to move. So as you start to turn to look around, enemies will start to move and reach for weapons, and it's all like red modelled images, the the fake characters. But you find yourself slowly moving forward and dodging bullets while you're grabbing the nearest item to throw and take down enemies or to knock something out of their hands so you can grab it in the air, then fire off a bullet. And because it takes too long to reload, then throw the gun at another enemy so he drops his gun so you can pick that up. So it is the closest that you'll get to playing the Matrix, especially if you get the VR version. The VR version is pure immersive fun. Now, the game is clever in the way that it plays out, because it plays on the concept of you think you're playing a game, but it turns out you're actually playing a reality. And on the on the first game, there's a lot of subtle twists that really mess with your mind. This new game can be played as an independent game. It can be played as a standalone game, but it's best to be played as a sequel because it picks up on a few of the concepts of the original game 
flips them again, plays them even further, and it gives you the progress of being able to hack your mind to give yourself extra abilities as you're working through it. It's a clever game. It's a simplistic game, but it's so deeply immersive. Super hot, mind control, delete. On Steam, get it purchased. If you've got a console, purchase all the super hot games on there. There's bundled deals with all three versions of the game at the moment on there. Get that into your get it into your mind and throw yourself as close to the matrix as you can possibly get. Good recommendation. Mine is, and this is going to make you smile, Andy. Mine is the second season of What We Do in the Shadows. Yay! You've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. I caught up. I, I was up to date with it by last week's episode, last week's recording. But for this week, I, it's just because it stayed with me over the last week, and and that's what any good series does. And and little scenes alone just pop up in my head and make me chuckle. The series has been great. Who would have thought that the uh, the spin-off from from the movie would be this would have been this great? So, for those who don't know, shame on you. But what we do in the Shadows TV series is based on the uh, New Zealand film by Takia Watiti and uh, Jermaine Clement. The series as the film does follows the adventures of in a mock documentary uh, vampire roommates in this in the series living in Staten Island as opposed to in, in New Zealand. It's so funny. They uh, The second 10-episode series has just wrapped on BBC One, can be found on BBC iPlayer. If, you, if you're not into this, then you, you're dead from the neck up. It's, it's that simple. <laughs> it's just wonderfully, wonderfully created. It's, it's fantastically acted, uh, beautifully written. It's just, just a laugh a minute, a laugh a minute. It stars uh, Kevin Novak, who you remember from Four Lions, the great Matt Berry, uh, Natasia Demeturia, uh, Harvey Gillian, uh, Mark Prox, and it's just it's just wonderful. I'm not going to say any more about it. Just go and watch it. But the, the one words I am going to leave with you is Joey Dakota. <laughs> it's it's a series that definitely deserves to be watched again as well. It does. It's it's fantastic. I'm going to revisit. I can re- I can revisit the episodes from season one and season two, and still find myself laughing over and over at the same points it's such a brilliant brilliant tv series matt berry is on fine form it's because it it, it adds to the film rather than takes anything away from it It, it's not ignored the film in fact we we realize it's all playing out in the same universe uh it's not just a recreation who would have thought that it it would have worked in in the get-go so that's my neat thing is visit it on bbc iplayer what We Do in the Shadows, Season 2. And if you've not seen any of it, start with Season 1. In fact, go back and watch What We Do in the Shadows movie and then watch the series. That's it for Episode 30 of The Film File. We'll see you again next week. In the meantime, we need guns. Lots of guns. And in the first film, Joe Pantolania. Joe Joe Pantolania. Joe Pantypants. (laughs) I'm just going to go. I'll do that again.